Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Project managers often kind of get reduced into these tiny little sort of like secretary bubbles. Like, yeah, you just go off and do, do your project management stuff. I just want to, I just want to make sure things finish on time, but they're left out of the big conversations. Like how does project management impact pricing? How does project management impact capacity at a level where you can start looking at efficiency across an entire organization? Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. My new book, Relationship Sales at Scale, is now live on Amazon Kindle, on paperback, as well as hardcover. So to tell you about the book and to give you a little context, in a world of noise, competition, and skepticism, you've probably found that spamming your prospects with undifferentiated pitches, case studies, and sales collateral is a lot like yelling at a brick wall. And on the other hand, trying to go old school and completely personalize every touchpoint 100% is unrealistic and unsustainable because the few people you manage to contact might not even notice or care. And when life gets busy, your sales activity and your team's activity tends to grind to a halt. Your pipeline runs dry and stagnation, feast and famine, all these bad things, they can all happen. So what if the answer is actually combining the new school with the old? And instead of going in cold, how much faster could you grow if you could identify and open doors with the prospects who live within your circles of influence and are already primed to trust and do business with you? So this book, Relationship Sales at Scale, is the new selling philosophy for our age. Bold statement, right? But it is because it marries the timeless power of tribe-based trust with digitally enabled scale so you can open doors tastefully and convert prospects consistently, all without spamming anyone. So it's written by me, Dan Englander. I'm the CEO and founder of this company, Sales Schema, and the book's stories strategies, and hands-on resources are grounded in thousands of outreach campaigns conducted for clients since 2014. That's among almost 90 clients to secure opportunities between our clients and hard-to-reach prospects, including the leaders of the largest companies on earth. A few things you're going to learn, you're going to learn how to balance personalization and scale to keep your pipeline full and achieve reliable and predictable growth. You're going to learn how to condense five years of networking into a single week-long campaign so you can batch up warm referrals into specific ideal accounts. You're going to learn how to de-risk conversations. That's the, the emphasis for this with highly skeptical prospects by leveraging strong personal commonalities instead of boring publicly available information like, hey, I saw you tweeted about this thing last week. That doesn't work. And you're going to be able to leverage dozens of actual copy examples, campaign strategies, and online resources so you can launch and close deals in a matter of weeks. So Relationship Sales to Scale will reshape the way you think about sales and business development, whether you are an owner, a dedicated salesperson, or in any growth-focused role. This book is a fit for the owners and salespeople in professional service companies and other B2B service and or software areas, assuming you're going after high lifetime value. So this is not for small, medium-sized businesses. So with that said, if you would like to learn more and pick up the book on Kindle or paperback or hardcover, and eventually we'll have it out in audio before too long, you can do that by going to saleschema.com slash rsas. Again, that's saleschema.com slash rsas. So today on the show, I'm very excited to welcome Rachel Gertz. So according to her official bio, Rachel is the CEO and digital PM trainer at Louder Than 10, which is a great Spinal Tap reference, by the way. She trains tech workers on how to transform their companies through democratic project management, and she helps companies track project numbers that really matter, including how to turn blocks into opportunities to build strong relationships with their teams, customers, and clients. Her mission at Louder Than 10 is to give back power to the people leading their projects so they can end hustle culture. So I think you're going to find that Rachel is a wealth of knowledge when it comes not just to project management, but to operations and even all the ways that operations threads itself into other aspects of a business like sales from so many different angles. She talks about really the human element of project management. And I think that we found ourselves kind of both in agreement and how often this goes wrong, where you find 
these systems that over-optimize for the wrong things or over-optimize for one metric at the expense of everything else. I think that Rachel's really at the forefront of figuring out how to incentivize the best performance, retain employees longer at a time when there's so much attrition and uh, frankly, you know, so much hardship and isolation, you know, in, in, in the sort of post-COVID environment. So I really think that she's approaching this from from a very different and compelling angle. And I think you're going to learn a whole lot about how you can train a player project managers. So without further ado, please give it up for Rachel Gertz. Rachel, nice to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. The topic, you know, I think broadly is project management, which ties into so many things, right? As as we talked about before we threw on the recorder, it ties into operations, it ties into sales, it ties into everything. And it's almost like just this embedded part of any human skill set is like some amount of project management, even if you're going to the store to like shop for a recipe or something like that, right? So before we get into that, I'll give you the floor. I'd love to just uh, learn more about your backgrounds and kind of how you're approaching this this topic. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. So I'm Rachel Gertz. I'm the co-founder at Louder Than 10. And I'm also part of the new director level that we're moving into a worker-owned cooperative. So anyone who works at Louder Than 10 has the opportunity to buy into ownership at Louder Than 10. And we sort of look at that as our way of changing how power is distributed and shared in a small context, but has big ripple effects. So that's just sort of the company background. I am a trainer and an educator by trade. I actually graduated as an educator years and years ago, and I kind of didn't enjoy the the systems of how you would sort of be stuck in a classroom and be teaching, this is how you should think, not this is how thinking works. And here's some considerations for like how you can show up differently. So I, I moved away from like the K to 12 and I found my heart and my home in digital project management and with a specific focus on project systems, which you mentioned, and that ties very much into operations. So louder than 10, we focus on digital project management and operations training for teams and individuals. To kind of let people wrap their heads around that a little bit, if they're kind of coming from an agency background, how are you typically partnering with clients? If you if you start with a new client, like what's going on on day one, tangibly, day yeah. five, day 30, et cetera? Yeah. Totally. So we have a couple different ways that we interact with uh, digital agencies, studios, and internal creative teams. So basically, when a team wants to level up their project management operations skills, they can enroll in a course and the course might be you know 90 days. And within that timeframe, they're not just going to be learning about project management, but they're going to be learning about the sales process because sales and PM hook in together. If you undersell on that first project, when it comes in, everybody else down the road is going to be screwed, right? And the profit is really hard to retain. Uh, we sort of look at it like sales job is to bring in profitable work and the PMs and project leaders jobs are to keep it that way. So we sort of see that really nice relationship. So folks would work with us in that context and, you know, over the course of 90 days, or uh, if you wanted to extend that into our apprenticeship model, we have like a more of a kind of a moonshot. You can kind of go from being a junior or mid-level and then really looking at senior level leadership. A lot of our folks who graduate turn into actual COOs or director of ops and delivery. So the relationship is very much based on like a training plus a consultative layer to get those teams up up to speed with implementing change instead of having it go top down. When a PM is working with you, whether they're new or wherever they are in the process, what sort of training, if any, have they typically gotten? Like, what's the? I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of different situations, but like, what's the typical archetype of a, of a PM you're Ugh. working with? Yeah, that's a really great question. So, it, it may not come as a shock, but most project leaders, and again, I use that title loosely because it can be a coordinator, an AM, a PM, it could be a producer, uh, it might be someone else that just kind of fell into the role and they have they have a design or dev lead uh, kind of context. They usually don't have formal training, or if they do, they might have had like project management institute training, which you might have been familiar, might be familiar with just like the major project management body, but it is not tailored to digital. It's not tailored to our world, right? So these folks 
come in and they're sort of like learning in the trenches. And if they happen to be really good at organization or they're really great at um, content writing or research, or they happen to be really good at problem solving, they like people and they like process, they often fall into that role of digital project manager. As a quick break, I wanted to let you know about our newest video training, how to take charge of your agency's future revenue. By the end of this training, you're going to learn how we get two to five qualified appointments every week using tasteful and highly targeted email outreach. That might not sound like a lot, but once you understand the outreach napkin math, you're going to learn how this can lead to massive scale for your agency or B2B service company. In addition to that, you're going to learn the six steps for successful outreach campaigns based on everything that we've learned from working with more than 100 agencies since 2014. You're going to get the complete agency outreach tech stack so you understand the right tools for getting the right results. And you're going to see agency to brand email examples and get inspiration from high converting campaigns. So to get this 30-minute training, all you need to do is go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge. Right. So it's almost like they just sort of end up there by default without based on some other job that they've applied for, if I understand right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And and I think too, because the discipline of digital project management, like it's eventually we'll drop the digital because it'll just all be digital, yeah. right? But that sort of evolution of the last 10 or 15 years, you know, think about the folks coming into this working in digital agencies. A lot of those agency owners are I was going to say our age, but they're, they're like, you know, they've been running things for like 20 years or up to 20 years. And it's sort of like, you know, they might've started as a designer or a developer or a researcher. Seldom do they actually have, you know, like an MBA or something like that to lead the organization. So what often happens is that they're using their way of problem solving to apply to project management and operations. And then they'll usually hire in roles to kind of support that. So if they're not familiar with the discipline of PM and like I... I have had interesting experiences being a PM coming into organizations that don't know what PM is. They might often be like, oh, we don't, we're averse to process. We actually feel like that's very limiting to our creative flow, right? right. Or we don't want to, we don't want to put ourselves through a meat grinder. So what that means is project managers often kind of get reduced into these tiny little sort of like secretary bubbles, like, yeah, you just go off and do, do your project management stuff. I just want to, I just want to make sure things finish on time. But they're left out of the big conversations like how does project management impact pricing? How does project management impact capacity at a level where you can start looking at efficiency across an entire organization? Yeah. And I think with that, like, there's a lot of different operational roles that an agency or any, any company can hire for. And I think one big like cause of hand wringing is sort of like what skill sets are we prioritizing in the hiring process, right? Because like project management is a skill set, yeah. And you probably have some better opinion or like more informed opinions than I do on what that entails. But I think my head goes towards you know attention to detail and process and all these sorts of things. But then there's also like the interpersonal skills element. Like, can you deal with a difficult conversation with a yeah. client? Can you ask questions? Can you be curious? You know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, I mean, to, to kind of give a constraint, if I'm an agency and I'm like, I need somebody to be client facing after we've won a big project, like a multi six figure project with a big enterprise brand or whatever, what skills am I looking at as they apply to all of the above in that, in that yeah. role? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great question. I mean, what often happens is we we tend to get lost in the the focus around like detail being detail oriented. It's very important. Of course, a PM should be detail oriented. It is kind of like special when you find somebody who can look at the big picture and see the small details. What I've found really interesting is that you know some consultants believe that PMs cannot do both roles. Like they can't play an AM and a PM role. They're either one or the other because there has to be a healthy tension there. And I think that that's really interesting because I think that when PMs are able to look at the big picture. So when I say big picture, I'm talking about not just the flow of the project and whether that thing's going to be profitable, but I'm thinking about how that project fits into a whole portfolio of projects that fits into the entire client, you know, all of the client accounts that are run that, that add up to all of the revenue and profit that 
that actually flow through the company, when they're able to see the levers and dials that they can pull for the business, they can kind of tap into that account management brain. And when they're able to look at firm but gentle resistance to taking things out of scope, or if you're going to take things out of scope, treat it as opportunity for future scope, right? Those like abilities to negotiate, to have tough conversations, to build alignment on the team with the clients, with executives, like those are powerful skills. And the detail orientation, like that's something where, I mean, I don't know how you're feeling, but like in this sort of like COVID age, moment to moment to moment, right? Like two days can feel like a thousand years sometimes. And I think that um, giving giving a little grace on some of those like details is creating better systems for how those details can be captured. And I think yeah. great PMs can do that. Yeah, that that makes sense. It's funny, just as an aside, I'm like the worst person to ask about perspectives on the COVID age, just because we've been we've been distributed since day one, yeah, back when it was thing. not cool at all, back when it was <laughs> tough to win clients for being distributed. Totally. Um, so I have no frame of reference, but but no, but I, I totally believe that. And so so that makes sense. So it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, you kind of consider the negotiation skills, the interpersonal stuff, all kind of part of the PM umbrella. I yeah, I, I think they're pivotal. I think oftentimes PMs are just not given access to the training or the just the day-to-day experience of what is it to reset a client relationship. You know, they're sort of told, yeah. like, here's here's your box and you know, iron triangle time scope budget, that's what you deal with. But then when a project fails, like they have the ultimate accountability for that success or failure. So the pressure of that success, it's like if they're not given the ability to express, here's how a relationship can function and here's how I can show up for an AM if I work with one. Like yeah. you're we're really, we're really limiting the power of a project manager and their teams. <laughs> yeah, that that makes sense. And I think that that's a good time to segue to uh, a concept that, that you you talk a lot about on your site that I was reading about, which is democratic project management. Can you define like what that is to you and just kind of how, yeah, how you're, how you're kind of bringing that to clients? Yeah. So traditionally project management has, has been very much based on like the history of scientific management. It's kind of like a carrot and stick way of getting people to do things in factories. And, you know, back in the 1800s, like if you if you work harder, if you do this these, this piecework, we'll we'll make sure that you're paid more. But also, there's a stick behind it that was like, if you don't, then you're going to be punished. And so, modern like modern, the most recent project management that came out of that was very much focused on uh, project managers as these hierarchical leaders that didn't have a lot of power in their own right, but they had the power to keep their team in shape. You know what I mean? And so it was very much about box ticking. It was very much about don't ask questions, just do your job. Out of that, like if you look at the hierarchy of most companies now, I mean, it, it does follow something where you have kind of like your basic rights met, but most of your other choices, you don't you don't get any control or say over that in the workplace. Right. So you can see as companies are moving more towards four-day work weeks and focusing on mental health and like really building in sabbaticals and focusing on teams being able to to identify in different ways and folks being able to identify in different ways that is making a shift and our where we see digital pm fitting is in that modern way of running and existing within a company structure where democracy it's not about the pm telling the team what to do it's about the team understanding what the levers and dials are and working together so that they can actually change the course of a project, which changes the course of the business. So it's about sustainable growth. And we look at it as like the PM's role is to kind of assess, okay, where are things at? And then remove obstacles. What do you need today? How can I, how can I get that out of your way? How can we have a better conversation? How can we talk about phase two before phase one's done to get people excited? Those kinds of things. Yeah. I, I think that so much of it, you know, historically has been about this illusion of control that, you know, an employer can have over an employee, whether that's keystroke monitoring or yeah. uh, time management and all these sort of things. So I, I have kind of like two minds about it. But then the other side of me is like, well, certain boxes do have to be checked at some point or else you don't 
have any accountability and you don't know what's going yeah. on. So h- how do you think about bridging that gap? You know, not the project manager themselves, but maybe the manager of the project manager or an employer, what should they be looking at? Like, what are those boxes to check? <laughs> I guess if that's the right way to put it, if not time, if not some other measurement like that. Totally. Yeah. So I think, again, it's like zooming out a level and looking more holistically. Like you can have a project that runs on time and you can also have a project that fits within the hours allocated for the budget. But either way, that project might not actually be profitable to the company, right? At the end of the day, if it's three months over on the timeline, there's cost of delay. And so cost of delay has a way bigger impact at times, right? When we're looking at the cost of paying your your salaried employees or paying freelancers who, you know, you if you want to keep them, they got to stay they got to stay active in the company. So, I mean, we look at like metrics a little differently. A lot of a lot of people push for like utilization metrics like how productive and efficient are you? And we look at it like, yeah, you can track that stuff and you should know what your efficiency level is. But when you're doing it, is it important to know down to the minute? Should you actually be asking people who are doing 50 different tasks in a day to track those individual tasks. Is that even useful? Because we start looking at it like you need a system to get the work done. We lose 20% of our time to changing tasks. So that adds up to like three days a week, right? Like, or two and a bit days. So we have to, we have to zoom out from that. Yeah, no, I'm just nodding my head a lot because it's it's a classic example of like over-optimizing for one metric at the expense of yes. everything else. And back to the the industrial age thing, it's like, yeah, that's clearly a relic of that where you know you're treating a human like a machine, not factoring in task switching costs and that sort of thing. And and I and I've seen this myself because you know, we've tracked time and I go look at just a client from hell, just one that's like horrible <laughs> that we should have fired like months ago. And you look at the time spent and it's like, okay, it's a uh, 15% more time than usual. It's like, but qualitatively, it's a completely horrible situation, right? Uh, which yeah. is rare, thankfully rare, but you know, it's, it's, uh, so I, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, man, that, that's so sad, right? When that happens, it's like the team gets excited at the beginning, the client's excited at the beginning. And if it wasn't a good fit at, at the beginning and there was no criteria for what makes a good fit and PMs don't know and sales doesn't know, then it's like, we're just bringing in the work, right? We don't know how it's going to turn out. And if I'm sure from like all of the work that you folks do, it's like, if you want good work, then you have to focus on promoting that good work and you have to bring in more of that similar kind of work, right? Otherwise it just doesn't, it doesn't translate. Sure. Yeah. And another another good segue, which is another area I know that you focus on a lot, which is unifying project management with sales. So can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, for sure. So again, a lot of the time, project management is seen as its own sort of separate discipline when it actually is kind of the node in the network. It hooks into everything else. It's the invisible layer that it keeps everything running smoothly. And so I think you had Nancy Lyons on as a guest a little while back. And uh, her I still quote her all the time, but she's like, bad project management is like air pollution. If you can see it, it's probably killing you. And so the idea is that we want invisible project management. So when it hooks into sales specifically, again, kind of reiterating the idea that sales job is to bring in profitable work and PMs is to keep it that way, then what we have to look at is getting folks in PM to sit in earlier on those sales convos. It doesn't mean they have to be, you know, saying to a, a prospect, oh no, we can't, we can't do that. But the sales person and the PM being super aligned is going to create situations where those PMs can increase ROI, upsell accounts, flag risks. And then when they're flagging them, it's not like, oh, we just can't take that on. It's like, we can take that on if. But by the time in a traditional process, a project process that the PM is involved, it's already too late. Everything has been cemented, signed, dotted, blood, right? There's no wiggle. So bringing that PM in early, having them support client onboarding and education as an actual possible deliverable or like value add, those are things that create a really strong relationship that creates ongoing work MMR, right? You just focus yeah. on that. I, I really like that. That's that's really useful. I, and I think to, to dig into that a little bit more, I think like one thing is, you know, sales has their their incentives and and PMs have 
very busy lives as well. Um, yeah. uh, what's how do you know when to bring in the PM in a way that respects everyone's time? Like, for example, are your better clients are they doing things like packaging a paid strategy in order to justify bringing in a PM, or is there some more elegant way of doing that that you've seen? Yeah. So what we sort of look at like. PM should be part of all projects and project management by default. It's usually about a 20 up to 30% allocation on all projects because when projects fail, they usually fail because of poor project management. And in the last stat I pulled, which is probably now 2019, but it's 70% of our projects are failing. So if if they're all failing, like we need to allocate for that. We need to have that as part of the process. So often if you have clients that are like, oh, I don't need, I don't need PM. I have one. That's great that you have one, but we need one because we're doing all of this other work on our side. And everyone on the team does a little bit of project management, whether you wear, wear the hat or not, you're definitely doing that day to day, right? So we would say things like if there is a tough sell or you're trying to get that alignment, you're you're looking at like stronger vetting up front with sales. And the vetting can be something where it's like, okay, we could have a really great fit here if we had more alignment with our goals and lower risk. So what are two ways that we could increase our goal goals alignment? So their business goals, our business goals are headed in the same direction because there's not just project goals, right? Like, is their company actually moving in the same direction as your company? Or are they going to take you further away from that, from that, right? And then is the risk actually worth us taking that on? Because there's ways to white label. There's ways to create shared risk where you can you know, experiment together and reuse material together or whatever. But you as, a, as, you know, as your project leaders can hook into that sales department and you can allocate like once every once a week or once every two weeks when new leads are coming in, just a quick vetting together of you know, what, what they started forming on your initial sales call details. If you can have them sit in on the first or second sales call, those are just good habits to get into. Our belief is that whoever um, works on the project should be supporting the scoping and the estimating of the project. Because if you just get the, the a lead to, to scope something, they're going to scope it according to how they would approach it, not how the junior dev is going to be approaching it or how the mid-level designer is going to be approaching it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think maybe tied to that um to be kind of vulnerable and bring up you know project management issue we're, we're having and i'd love to get some free consulting it's one of the, <laughs> the benefits of having a podcast is you get to you get to squeeze people for that it has to do so basically we have approval stages related to prospects that our clients are targeting and the copy and the strategy that we're using like on a next forthcoming campaign so on one hand we've learned that we need to have a 30 day standing call to like go over these things and to sort of honestly offer the white linen tablecloth service, right? It's like we're not a, we're not a productized service, you know. We're we're the high end provider, et cetera, and that's half of it, or maybe twenty percent of it. The other eighty percent is hashing over the ideas and getting their feedback and making sure the thing that we think is going to work is also going to like conform to their style and the things that that they want to do. But the issue with that is that call, something comes up on their end, that, that call gets rescheduled, it gets pushed back a week. Then we have this gap where there's no activity, right? Because we're waiting on this, we're waiting on that. So that's the issue. And we're trying different things. We're like, do we batch up approvals? Do we basically just say, hey, we're running with this. Uh, let us speak now or hold your peace. Any thoughts on that? Oh, I love it. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's interesting because I think that the sales and the PM process are evolving. And I think that we're starting to see some interesting ways where like procurement is taking longer. I don't know if you've heard stats on that too, but on my side, I'm hearing it's taking up to six months in order to close. And it's just wild. Like a lot of it could be recession-based and stuff, but, you know, I sort of see it as this opportunity for like building trust and building a kind of attunement or affinity for, for the leads that you're working with. And so, I mean, obviously some of that work can be done on the site with different, you know, diagnostic tools and that kind of thing. But um, what's interesting is like maybe vetting for vetting for fit has, might have to do with less on like, what's your project goals, but like, what do you like to work with? Right. Cause we always sell the experience of working with us as a digital agency, but then when it comes down to it, all we mean is the deliverables we create are going to be great. You'll love them. But are we actually great to work with, right? So there could be this change in the dynamic where it's like a little bit more time and space put into, 
you know, we run folks through uh, this as a standard, like exploratory phase where we'll sit down with you and your core stakeholder group. And we'll actually look at if it's a greenfield project, like what are the possibilities here? And maybe it is just coming out with like a five minute loom video or a one page brief of like what, what's possible if the alignment is in place. And like, when I say alignment, it might not just be like, oh, you're the right size and shape, but looking at, do you have someone that's actually available on your side to be present for project management related turnarounds and approvals? Because that can often take like, you know, up to a half day a week for the person or people that are on the team. And they don't even know what their commitment levels got to be like. We don't usually, you know, folks sometimes don't inform their clients of what that process looks like. So it, it might be something around like creating like a package or like a sort of a really supportive, ha- like guiding uh, hand-holding process where it's like, we, we go through these designated exploratory sessions together and you're going to get this and this and this out of each of those in the sales process. I'm, I'm not a fan of like doing work for free. So I would say like at the end of this, if you come out of it, this is flat rate, you'll only pay for these exploratory sessions. But if you choose to work with us, we'll just throw those in and we, we won't charge for them. So that's yeah. built into the rest of the, the project relationship. Yeah, I really like that. I think my takeaways are like, really, you know, and we're we're starting to do that, but probably not as well as we should, which is basically figure out how much time are you actually able to devote. And then I think the issue with that is there's a lot of enthusiasm in the beca- towards the end of the sales process, and then the reality yeah. sets in, and people people get busy, and it's never the first campaign, but it might be one you know months down the road or something yeah. where a wrench will kind of get thrown in the gears. So much of it is. What I found personally, and this probably applies to people running agencies as well, is like a lot of it isn't some new or sexy idea or deck or presentation or whatever. It's more about reconnoitering the amount of information a client gets at any given time or like the stages of of approval and those sorts of things. So I don't know if I have a good question. Do you have any thoughts on that though, about like how do you iterate on what information gets presented when? <laughs> yeah, I think one thing that I've really distilled down from all of the work that we've done with, you know, hundreds of agencies is their clients want to know where are we? Where are we going? And are we okay at all points? If we can answer those questions, things are usually going to go very well, right? So mm-hmm. it's maybe like not so much, here's how the design process works, but here's how our feedback and approval process works. Here's how much time you're going to need to spend on this project every week for approvals. Here's what best practices and tips we've, you know, we incorporate in order to make you feel supported. So, you know, we already know you have a full project load. This is an extra project for you where this is actually a built-in project for us, right? So giving them the opportunity to see that there's so much time that can be allocated for this where they can check in and be like, are things moving forward? Like, don't just do an internal agency retro, do a client retro and be like, how are you feeling right now? How do you want to feel? Because sometimes it's not about how is the pro- like how's the project itself going. It's like is every is everyone doing okay? Like are we are we all moving in the same direction here? So I, I think about a lot of that because it is like that invisible layer. It's not the obvious project management time scope budget questions. It's like a, a very human psychological safety question of yeah. our world's on fire, your company might be on fire, and you're trying to support your clients company that's on fire with better outcomes that result in a stronger business that can grow, right? So that's where their heads are at. That's what's keeping them up at night. <laughs> yeah. And, and you and then you're always left with the usual like uh buffet of cognitive biases that we all have, right? Because then you you know there's sort of like this whole array of results that are agreed on at the beginning, which are very like cold and numeric and it's like we need to be here and then the allegiance throughout the whole project is focused on getting those results regardless of like where anybody is at emotionally (laughs) it takes like sometimes six to eight months to even see those results because that's a normal feedback cycle you make a change today it'll show up on your books six to eight months from now right so how can we promise things and then not change those as we're discovering more and more and more i think that we have this idea that we somehow have to promise results within like a week or, you know, 
two weeks or something. And it's like, well, let's look at a change cycle and see how much time does it actually take to see what you want to see. What we need to know is, are we are we moving in the same direction together? Does this feel good? And is it helping you to solve your immediate problems? Then we can talk about what that longer term change is going to look like. Yeah. And, and with that in mind, like, how do you feel about the personal trainer metaphor versus the server at a restaurant metaphor? Like, is your allegiance to the client and the, all their their messy, you know, idiosyncrasies and cognitive biases right now, or do you have allegiance to like what that that person or company could become? You know, how do you feel about Ooh. that? I mean, do they have to be separate? No, but they usually are. <laughs> <laughs> they usually are. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you're thinking about managing a relationship, right? So if you are an AM or a PM in your company and you're working with, let's say, someone who's at a like mid level marketing position, but maybe they want to move into a director role. Like, of course you're going to be asking that person like, Hey Pam, like, where do you, where do you want to head in your career? Like what's, what's important to you? Like, what would be some things that I could do to show up for you as your point of contact just separately outside of this project? So of course you're going to honor and support them and create that alignment because you, you want them and need them to be playing on the same team with you. Right. That's very, very vital. And ultimately the organization is its own organism. So our job is to sort of try to create what I always kind of allude to like a golden arrow. There's like you and your own needs. There's your you, you and your needs within your own organization. Then if you work with clients, there's their organization and that point of contact. So you're trying to like get that arrow as straight as possible. So everybody is is tuned into this feels good. This looks good. And we're actually all wanting the same thing. So I think that in order to do that, there are a lot of tough conversations, but you can go in and like, like arm your mid-level point of contact with the pieces that you know their boss is going to ask for. Like you right. can help them have that tough conversation that makes them look good and you, because you don't want to run over over them with a bus, right? Like that doesn't feel good at all. And ultimately, you know, they may go into another organization and take take you or your company along with them as a really trusted provider. Right. And that's especially big in, in the agency space, like as we all know. And I, I love that. It's kind of like the concept of vertical alignment, you know, so across yeah. across all spheres. So that's great. Um, and to circle back to one thing that you you mentioned at the beginning, um, that you're moving into kind of a worker-owned cooperative. Can you talk about that a bit and just kind of like what inspired it and so on? Yeah. Oh man, this has been a, a journey. So it's been about a year and a half, two years. And initially we were trying to figure out a way where it's like, you know, we really do strongly believe in, you know, you look at it, it's like, we care so much about democracy in our day to day, but then we settle for dictatorships at work. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. Like what could this, what other models could work here? And so, you know, we're not a large company as a, like a consultancy and training company. So we, we have power that we have that we can, exert in our immediate influence. And then that power also has a ripple effect with any of the students or any of the companies that we work with. So our whole thing was looking at, we started with a boot camp. So we took like a, a cooperative boot camp that was run out of Vancouver in Canada. There's a huge cooperative movement happening, not just in Canada, but in the United States as well. Like lawyers and accountants backed up for like a year to get to get access to like their specific services for that kind of thing. But uh, the bootcamp helped us understand, you know, like the principles are things like education is, is a huge priority. Every member gets one vote, you know, like looking at like the generative conversations that are, you know, of course you can have people who make the decisions, but when it comes to which direction is the company going, those are voted on. It's not like just two owners are making that decision. All of the owners, which potentially could be any, any and all of the employees, get to help shape that. And what that does is, you know, like if you look at, say, a 500 person company that doesn't have shared ownership, you have people that are like, well, we don't, we don't want to raise salaries because then our executives won't be able to make bonuses. But when everybody's an owner, it's like, what's fair to everyone? What's equitable for everyone? And also the members are like, hey, I care about this company and it needs to succeed. So what are the things that I can do to help it succeed? They're very invested and very engaged in that process. So that's a little bit about kind yeah. of why we did it. It sounds compelling. And to dig into to that, it's kind of like the topic of, you know, democracy in a company a little bit. And just to kind of like, you know, play devil's advocate and everything. 
it's almost like if if you decide to work at a particular company, that's kind of like a vote in its own right. So I guess my question is, it's not even devil's advocate, but just how do you manage like the values and the principles of a company deliberately, right, in the context of democracy? Because that sounds like you look at what people want and then you make the the mission based on that. But what if you decide that's not what you want as as the entrepreneur or the owner? And if people don't like that, you know, there's plenty of other options for them. Like, how do you feel about that? That yeah. approach, right? I, I mean, that tends to be the the dominant. Like people, their their fears or their worries about like going in that direction. And so, yeah. um, I think part of it is maybe changing the relationship to the to the feeling of what power means. Because if you think about it, if you're an agency owner and you're like, "Yeah, this is my vision in my company," you might have these like values and principles that you live and die by. What's keeping you up at two in the morning? It's paying people's salaries. It's making sure the work is good enough. It's making sure you have the ability to grow. And, you know, if you have to deal with competition, it's like making sure you can scale. Do you do that on your own or do you do that with a group of very dedicated people? So you might have to look at it like, okay, these are very dedicated people, but they're only going to put in one to two years and then gone, right? And they got to start all over again with somebody new. Oftentimes folks who are members, they're there because they want to continue to see this thing grow. And if they ever stagnate in their roles, they actually will swap out roles or create new roles that are like more on the innovation side, or maybe they get to be more on technical side. So there's almost like its own like reforming. And uh, it's a beautiful process where people don't get bored because they don't, they don't give up. They, they see the process through. And when those live values, I think it is like down to the core values of like, is it, is it me over us? Is it money over, over people? Is it like, depending on what those values are, if you have your core values aligned, then usually the direction that you want to go, like if one person votes nay and everyone else votes, Hey, then you, you go in the direction of the most of the people. And that's, that's what happens in a democracy, right? Yeah. And usually, usually that uh, takes you in a in a better direction. Sometimes it can take you in a bad direction. There's like, uh, are you familiar with like MEC MEC here? Is a mountain uh, equipment co-op? No, I don't think so. It's like a Canadian. I believe it's Canadian. It could be also American now too. But um, it was. It's like a, a company that would sell hiking, camping, outdoor gear, and they they became a worker owned cooperative. And then slowly over time, their board sort of got like like diluted. And so eventually, the people that were on the board, so the, the members that that got to make the decisions, they ended up trying to make decisions that favored profit over people. And so then then the last latest like vote was like, also, we don't want to be a co-op anymore. Right. So that, that can happen, but it's not, it's not the typical case. Like Mondragon is like the biggest network of co-ops in Spain. And there's like 10, like over 10,000 companies. So yeah, that's, it's super, it's super interesting. And it's like the way that I, that I sort of think about it is, and this is partially informed by I'm reading the the new book about Amazon, which is called working backwards, right. Which is about Amazon's process and Amazon love them or hate them they are very clear with their loyalties right which are to 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 customers not to employees right, right? Yeah. but so it could be that the and, and love them or hate them they've been very obviously very successful at that but there could be an argument that you know you're always loyal to 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 people to everyone and that's the goal but in a, in a client service business or in a complex service business, there could be a stronger argument that like your employees and like the brain power of your team gets a bigger slice of the pie than your clients do, you know, yeah. and it's not, to, it's not to say that your clients don't are, aren't like super important as well, but especially now, like if you talk to anybody in the agency world, just retaining people or having to rehire every two years is like just such a drag. So I think that the way you're approaching this makes a lot of sense, you know, at least experimenting with that and seeing how well it works and everything. Yeah. Totally. It's like 400% of a mid-level or senior level person's salary to replace them. Right. Like with margins being what they are in, in digital for agencies, like you have to retain your people. You have to invest in your people. And I mean, I remember my, my first talk in uh, at the digital PM summit back in like 2014 was if you love your clients, then put your team first, because if you don't have a team that can support you foundationally and they aren't feeling rested and energized and what are you running? It's a hollowed out shell of tired broken people who are just looking to jump ship 
how good are your outcomes going to be? How happy are your clients going to be, right? We have to look after our teams. There's no other option. And I am seeing now a dichotomy between the companies that choose to do that and the companies who won't. Yeah, that, that's great. And before we get to the kind of the last segment of the show, just to dig into that point a little bit more. So like your clients that you've worked with that have had that hauled out shell that have had stressed out employees, like what are the things that you've seen them change or do differently to make you know, meaningful change in a relatively short amount of time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say one thing before I start in, on, in that direction. So if, if they're a hollowed out shell and they approach us, but can we work together? My whole thing will be, are you interested in actual change? Because if you're just like, fix my team or fix my PM, there is literally nothing we can do unless that owner and the leadership team are actually invested in change and they're invested in what is that feeling of safety? What is that feeling of, uh, I know we can do a great job and I know that my team is there to support. So that that's the precursor to that. But if if folks are kind of like, oh, running ragged and they're feeling really tired and they just like, we could do this, but hell, I need help. How, how do we do this? Then things that we, we do to help people change in a short amount of time, like, you know, we've we've had folks go from fixed bid projects with, you know, fixed scope, fixed timeline into creating opportunities to do monthly recurring revenue and changing, you know, agreements so that instead of trying to predefine scope on a constantly shifting target, you maybe introduce a master agreement, right? And then from there, you build out your scope of work in your research or discovery phase, but you can do it in a totally agile way if that's the the thing you want to do, but you can also do it in a hybrid way. There's no like rules about with which methodology or approach you should use. We are, you know, teaching our our students and their and their teams how to uh, run workshops with the team that surface things like, you know, what risks do you normally see on a project? If we were to look backwards and say that project's done, what went wrong on that project? Your engineers, your designers, your writers, all of the folks in, in your in your processes, they already know where things go wrong. They already know where the dynamite is. So they actually have incredible wisdom if you give them that opportunity to work through, okay, if we had one working session on like, what are the three things that we could do to improve handover process between design and dev? Chances are they already have some of those answers. And then what we come and do is we look at the system behind that. Why does it break down there? How does it break down? What causes it to break down? How do you go in and fix it up here, upstream, so it's not going to happen down here? And then you can just see their eyes lighting up because they're like, I can make this change. We can do this thing and we can change it in a week. So some of it is building out your operations roadmap for the year. And then like, don't get bogged down by like, I'm going to do 17 things. You can do like, one or two things, but focus on the big ones, right? Focus on having like a a clear communication plan, focus on better handover processes. It's the gaps between that, that really matter, right? Not just the, the phases themselves. Focus on how you'll handle risk, make it safe to talk about and turn risk into opportunities. That creates basically built in AM skills into every single teammate, which is what you want, right? Things like that are, are pretty powerful. Yeah, there's there's so many great nuggets in there, and I, and I think one thing that jumped out at me is the the post mortem, right? Where you're kind of like envisioning yourself down the road, and then looking back on what went right or what went wrong. And it's it's so it's so weird because it's like such a an elegant little mental hack you can do. Where I don't know why it's easier, but if if you say like, what do you think will go right or wrong? It's such a harder question to answer than to say, hey, let's pretend you're in the future looking back. I don't know why. It's just a slight reframe. But there's yeah. something about that that's uh, super, super interesting. Yeah. I wonder if it just has to do with like looking forward. We're, we're trying to be like, well, we don't know what will happen because of complexity. But when you look backwards, you've actually anticipated past experience with complexity already. And so right. you already know, right? Yeah. You've already been there <laughs> more or less, you know, different yeah. actors, but the same play. So totally. that makes a lot of sense. So for our, our newer segment to kind of close out the show, um, it's called overrated underrated. So what we'll, what I'll do is I'm going to throw out a term or a phrase. Um, you let us know overrated, underrated, properly rated, and why you think so. Uh, okay. It's a lightning round, um, which I've stolen shamelessly from the podcast conversations with Tyler. So nice. <laughs> anyway, are you ready? I'm ready. Hit me. Kanban. Ooh, what's the middle one? Properly rated? Properly rated, yes. <laughs> Properly rated. And why? 
Um, I think that it's a really good practice to get into seeing your workload. Being able to limit works in progress down to no more than five tickets is very healthy. And it stops the overwhelm from just looking at a backlog that is a thousand cards or tasks long. Awesome. That's great. Offsites. Underrated. I think we don't tend to do them as much as we should. And we need to get out of the idea that just having our check-ins are about projects or check-ins are about systems and process. We have to get into more of a zone of how are you human? Because that's the most important part. Yeah. Makes sense. Asana. <laughs> the classic camp school. <laughs> uh, overrated. Uh, I think Notion's better, but that's only because it's gotten so powerful in the last year. <laughs> to know. PowerPoint. Uh, overrated. You can you can often say things with one slide or one picture that you don't need to present in a deck. It's about a relationship. Scripting difficult conversations. Oh, underrated. This okay. This is definitely something I'm passionate about. If you don't know what words to say and you're anticipating a difficult conversation with someone, just having some backups to go to that allow you to think through instead of reactions and like worry, getting worried or stressed out. You're just you're relying on just some like clear kind of path, neural pathways that you're actually ingraining. It makes it so much easier to have those tough conversations. Yeah, that makes sense. I should have finished with, with that one because that's definitely more uh, more dramatic. But the last one I have is Gantt charts. <laughs> okay. Well, the history of the Gantt chart is actually, it did come out of the Industrial Revolution and it was meant to control carrot and stick, like uh, basically enslaved people on plantations. And it was meant to increase output. So I think that I would say overrated in that even though it's still a helpful visual, we have to decouple it from its really, really sorted past. And to do that, we have to look at better ways of scheduling time in blocks. So half-day blocks, if possible, full-day blocks, if possible, limiting our focus to no more than three projects at a time, if possible, and actually having uninterrupted workflow where we have at least a minimum of 45 minutes up to three hours straight of deep focus. Rachel, this has been this has been so fun, I, and I know that you have some workshops and some big events coming up. Um, where can people go to learn more about that and, and follow what you're up to? Yeah, so we have an upcoming Digital PM Foundations course it's starting on Thursday, October the twentieth. If you are somebody that is either a mid level PM or you have a team of folks that you're like, you know what, we're all kind of. Uh, responsible for the project management of of our projects, but we're we don't have anyone that's really like leading the process. And you want systems change? Definitely get in touch because we have a few spots left for that cohort. And um, in less than ninety days, you're going to be looking at a very strategic way of not just managing your projects better, but just totally overhauling ops. So it's going to be pretty, pretty magic. So that's our upcoming course, and we also have a workshop. Can I talk about that? Of course, yeah. Awesome. So our um, company's called Sales Schema, so you can sell all you want. <laughs> <laughs> you can sell all you want. Wonderful. Yeah. So it, we haven't announced this yet, but on uh, Wednesday, November the sixteenth, we're going to be bringing in Parakeeto to focus on your agency metrics and actually looking at how to set up and run healthier agency metrics. Marcel is a great pal of mine, and um, I'm friend of the show as well. Yeah, and a friend of the show, <laughs> and I'm excited to to be able to partner with him on that because I think they're doing really great work. Awesome. And we'll definitely get that linked up. Um, Rachel, this has been so great. And let's let's do it again. I feel like we covered so much ground and there's probably like 500 more shows that we could, we could <laughs> so do with what you covered today. So uh, <laughs> let's do it again. Thanks so much, Dan. It was really great to see you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Again, today's episode was sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, again, you can go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge.